Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with uh, Nick Matovich of Panini, and we're going to do the dueling questions format. So thank you, Panini, for, I guess, Nick, you're on the clock here. This is like part of your work assignment, because I cleared this through Tracy as if you needed his permission, but or I did either. But uh, thanks, Panini. Thanks, thanks, Tops. Thanks, Upper Deck. Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Heritage Auctions, Comcy.com and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. I think you're pretty familiar with all those, Nick. They're familiar with you, but they don't know, and I don't know what questions we're going to be batting back and forth for the next 14 minutes. So welcome to the show, Nick. You get the first shot. So what is your first question, and welcome to the show. I guess my my first question is, who is your favorite team, and kind of how did you get started in collecting? It's uh Obviously, we talked about my history in the last podcast. I don't know if that's going to be too long-winded for this format. Uh, I'm not going to take 15 minutes to answer it. I promise you that. That would be a way to kind of filibuster the questions. No, I want to get a bunch of questions. And I'll just quickly say, you know, I've said Roberto Clemente was my favorite player. And that kind of made the Pirates my favorite team in baseball. But it was pretty tough to be a Pirate fan when they had a 20-year dearth, drought. of. But I still kind of like, I still wear some Pirate stuff occasionally. So that's probably still my sentimental favorite team. Cowboys, probably more of a Cowboy fan than in football and uh, basketball, definitely the Mavs and the stars in hockey. So that makes me a homer, I guess, other than the Rangers. And I used to have season fix to the Rangers, but, but I've tried not to have too much of such a strong loyalty that I, that it gets in the way of having an unbiased viewpoint. So, so yeah, my favorite teams and players are, are not strong preferences where I'm going to go into mourning if one of them loses. So that's it. Okay. My turn, Nick, you worked for, for press pass. Tell me what was really good about Press Pass, what was bad about Press Pass, what you miss about Press Pass, just what happened there. And, uh, you know, again, with a positive tone on it, but Press Pass, I really enjoyed They had a number of innovations. They did a lot of cool things, but they didn't make it as, a, as an independent company. Sure. I really love my time there. It was really like a family. We'd get together a few times a year and do barbecues at either Bob Bovey's house or later, you know, at a local bar or restaurant as people kind of scattered around with Kevin Camp and DJ Kazmerzak, uh, Tom Farrell. You know, I think we did some great things, to be honest with you. If you look at, uh, I had the flexibility when I got there to kind of run the teams as I saw fit and do what I wanted with product. And we introduced, you know, let's be honest, it's a ripoff of what Upper Deck had done in the 90s, but the Press Pass Legend Series was uh, incredibly successful for us. And it was the first time you'd seen Joe Namath in an Alabama uniform or, you know, Bob Gibson as a Creighton player, you know. So we got to do some really unique things there. You know, Todd really started to churn when we, Upper Deck got the CLC exclusive to put a crimp on us. NASCAR obviously had been declining for a number of years. It was still a solid brand with a great collector base that supported the products. But as a company, it cut into our profitability when we lost those college marks. You know, the one thing I'll say is of all the industry exits there have been through the years, you can argue none was cleaner than Press Pass. There was one player and Trey, Trey Mason, I believe it was. I can picture him, but I can't think of him. He played at Auburn. He was a St. Louis Rams player. Um, He was the only redemption that we didn't have on hand, and we hadn't been able to fill redemptions on hands when we closed. We didn't walk on any invoices to vendors. We paid everybody in full, and while people were frustrated that we exited the business, it actually wasn't because we weren't profitable. It's because our ownership group was actually very large, very uh, well-off, very liquid, but they had 35 subsidiaries. 34 were in petroleum refinement, and we were the one that didn't fit the model. The guy who led the acquisition that was a trading card guy unexpectedly died of a heart attack about six months after they acquired us from RC2 in 2007. And when the energy market got tight in 2014, they decided they would rather funnel the money they were putting into us and, you know, the limited profits into their core business to kind of consolidate and insulate for lack of a better term. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you. Your turn. I know you still are involved in the industry and still go to the national every year. Are you still actively collecting and pursuing cards for your collection, I guess? Yeah, I, I basically 
have not, I try not to limit too much. I mean, some people when they're advanced collectors, like I could consider myself, you know, are go to a show with a real tiny want list and they come away frustrated because the, the limited number of things they were looking for, they, they couldn't find, even at the national. So I've kind of broadened what I, so when I come back with some cards from the national, it's, they're not necessarily super, they're definitely not super expensive and they could be a mix of brands, a mix of ages, but they're probably are three cuts. If I'm looking through a box of cards, if I see something that's Dallas oriented or, you know, a player that I like or a, a, a team or something that I'm going to potentially display, I'll pick those up. And then probably along the way, I'll see something. I think, well, why don't that's, that's underpriced or undervalued or something. And all those years, Nick, I, I had to just pass by, even if I was, you know, doing price research and I saw something that was, that was, you know, not wrong. Well, it's not wrongly priced. It just was, it just was a really good deal. And I would never buy it because I didn't want to compete or conflict. But now I think, gosh, I've been gone a long time. That card is worth a lot more. And it's, I'm not cheating anybody. It's there for the price. I think, well, I'll just take it. And so that's a little bit of an Easter egg hunt. So I'm looking through it. I'm not trying to buy any specific thing, but when I'm looking for the box and it's a basketball box and I'm looking for Dirk or Luca, if there's some other guys in there that I think are, are, are good deals. I'll pick it up. Same thing with the football. There's, I'll see some Cowboys and I'll get some of those, but then I'll see something. I'm not, gee, I, I don't like this player necessarily, but it's, it's a, you know, low supply, low demand, but I'm, I'm patient. So I'll pick up stuff that I think eventually will sell for, for more. So, and that's been fun. It may, means I can have a search. I can be on a hunt without telling everybody what it is and without being in a situation where it's so limiting that I'm only looking for obscure vertical many stuff. I'm going to come home frustrated. Right. Absolutely. Uh, my turn. You related in your origin story, you know, a couple of things that are exceptional. And I'm wondering if this is just your personality, but you mentioned with a, with a, with a good hearted nature that you were like passed over for not necessarily well promotion because of your age, because you were, you know, precocious, but you were, you were younger. And so you had to, you, you had to wait. Okay. And then I think you've been in a situation where you've had people and related to this is you've had people that worked for you that you now work for or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're either a very easygoing guy and that's part of your, of your asset or what? I'm just wondering I mean, that that's, you don't hear that very often that people, you know, that, you know, I know when I had my company, if somebody's passed over for promotion that they perceive they deserve, I'm not saying they do or don't, but, but if, if, if they perceive, then they're, they're not looking for something else. Or if they used to work for somebody, then or they, the, the person used to work for them, and then you're then they're going to come back and work for them, or vice versa. Then that's awkward. But you seem to not be awkward about that. That you're pretty easy going, and really that it's important who you work with more than who you work for. So is that a correct assessment? And because you're mentioning these guys that you're working with, and I know a bunch of them because they used to work. And they're great guys. So it must be that the esprit de corps is a big deal to you. Sure. And that's a big part of it, right? I'm not going to say that I haven't been bitter at certain points in my, my career as moments were shaking out, but it, I feel like at the end of the day, it's all worked out better for me. It gave me different experiences. I was blessed to be in North Carolina for the time period I was, you know, I had some illnesses in the family and I was able to have a lot more access to going home and helping around that, that I wouldn't have had if it hadn't shaken out the way it did. I was able to go back to school and get my master's at the university of North Carolina, which was a big thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I was able to meet my wife and, you know, would have never met her if I hadn't gone back to Carolina. So there's been enough positives and enough time has gone by that there's no point in worrying about that. And to your point, it, culture, fit, and ability are all huge things for me. So 
I, I don't care if I've worked somebody or somebody's worked for me, as long as you know I'm comfortable, they're going to be able to get past it as well. And the company is going to be in a better position, right? Before I even accepted the job here, because it was in the transition where we thought we were getting the football exclusive, but it wasn't guaranteed and we were going to be expanding the team. I actually told them before I came back, I want to hire Rob Springs as part of this. You know, Rob was a guy that was went to bat for me. And I think he's a guy that I know knows the market and can be a huge asset to the company. Right. And that's paid off in spades. You know, so it's at the end of the day, I, look, I'm a relatively easy, easygoing guy, but I'm also very high strung. I get very stressed out. I'm short with my temper at times. You know, the one thing I will say that's been good of my background, the way it's gone is I fight for guys on my team that are, I feel like are in similar spots. If I go to upper management and tell them this guy's ready to be promoted and they say, oh, he's a little younger. He hasn't been in that position very long. I tell them, that doesn't matter. I'm telling you, this guy can do the job. Let me make the call I want to make and we'll be in a better place. And I've honestly taken a few guys and done that since I got back. And as a result, the team again is stronger, right? I think we have been so successful as a company over the last few years due to the knowledge of our team as collectors and long-term hobbyists and hardcore sports fans who are going to prospect and keep up with these guys, right? As much as understanding the card industry and nuances is key to me, prospecting and understanding who the next big guy is going to be, where we can get a good autograph deal. And while it doesn't apply as much anymore, beat another company to a rookie card and have, you know, one of a handful out there that nobody else gets on is critical to the long-term success of the company and the growth of the brands. Yeah. I don't necessarily think this is a secret, but, you know, basically when, when I was running things, it was really important to me that the guys were competitive, but also got along. And sure. so you mentioned Rob, you know, Rob was, was really appreciated by his teammates and vice versa. And yeah. to me, that's, you still want that competitive drive, but, you know, putting out a price guide or putting out card sets is a team sport. It takes a bunch of people. Okay. Another question for you. I think it's my turn. Uh, what, uh, any regrets that you have? I mean, it sounds like you're in a good place right now, but any regrets? I mean, it sounds like when you talked about your, you were passed over for those promotions because you were too young. But if you'd have gotten those, maybe you wouldn't have gone to press pass and you wouldn't have met your wife and you wouldn't have got your master's and all these other things. So, so, but any, it sounds like any regrets you would have had and companies that went out of business or lost licenses that you've, you've iterated toward a, toward a good place. So any regrets that, uh, you know, not really professionally. Right. I think uh, I had a good lesson in North Carolina where I had hired somebody based off a resume as opposed to their passion and drive for the sport. And I actually had talked with Jim Dryden, who was the old VP of operations a lot here at the time. I've been talking about coming back and joining uh, the company in that window. And I was just finishing up my master's and ultimately decided to go in another direction. But I did talk to Jim about that hire. And it was a good lesson because I was relatively early in my career. It was the first call I'd ever gotten to make by myself. And I realized I couldn't just look at a resume, the, the importance of passion in the industry, and in particular in this industry, right? Somebody who's truly invested in cards and how they collect and how they watch sports is critical more so than somebody who's gone to North Carolina undergrad and gotten an MBA at, you know, Georgetown. It's, or, you know, sports management master, whatever it may be that, you know, that's, and it's not really a regret because I learned something from it. Personally, my biggest regret is that the 2000 National in Anaheim, uh, Smokies, you know, had been in Vegas a long-term, long-term shop that advertised with you guys for years. I had a Peyton Manning 98 rookie ticket for sale for 115 bucks. And I was all ready to buy it. And I talked to Doug and I'm very particular about card condition, right? And I, this was before grading or grading was just getting going. There were too many chips around the border for me, you know, and it was the quarters were still sharp, but they were just chipping. And I wasn't sure about the quality of the card for that price. It was a lot of money for me at the time, you know, and Doug told me there's not many of these out there. I would buy it. <laughs> I ultimately passed on the card. And now obviously that's, that's a monster card that I'm, I'm not sure I'll ever buy myself because of the current price in the marketplace. That is a legitimate regret. Okay. Uh, one of the things I would note, just to follow up on your response there, basically, I looked at resume and I think check, you know, when I, when I was hiring people, you know, kind of their background. And I also, I think I did a good job of really trying to hire people that had passion. So, but there's a third leg on the stool that I messed up 
mainly one time that is one of my regrets is that I did not check the references. Mm. And the reference that I found out later after there'd been a crash and burn of this guy that came to work for us and did not work out. He said, I could have told you, why didn't you call me? I said, well, I, his resume was so strong and his passion was so strong. So, well, he, he is not an honest person, <laughs> you know, and I could have told you that. And I said, I messed up. Yeah. So you. that's a regret I have. Let's see if we have time for, is it your turn? Did you yes, my, my last one? This is yeah. it. Last one. I guess my question is, what are your thoughts on the way the industry has developed over the last few years with kind of the influx of new money and the price of new wax going crazy and case breaking growing into a larger thing than it's ever been? You know, what are your thoughts? Do you see those aspects as positive, negative, negative, a mix of the two? Um, well, I mean, all the above, except I want to take exception with one word. The one word is the problem, and that is crazy. Okay. <laughs> influx of new money, no problem. That's good. Case breaking being more and more prominent and successful, I think that's good too. It's making accessible these quite expensive products to the to the not the average person but the 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 middle class person let's say that can that can can spend hundreds but not thousands but the crazy is the problem okay if you have uh i've mentioned this if it's irrational exuberance if there's this thought that things are going to keep going up every year and it'll never it's kind of like players player salaries and compensation you know patrick mahomes gets gets uh gets a half a billion dollars well that's you know, then is Dak think he needs to get more than that or something? I mean, it just, it, it makes it difficult. And so uh, if you take away the craziness and have a situation where Panini uh, is able to put out under their licenses and you're not being squeezed by the, by the, you know, the players or owners or the, the, the licensing entities that you're, you're able to put out reasonable products in reasonable quantity with reasonable prices, even price increases. But when the prices go up in a crazy manner, uh, it can be disruptive to the industry. And it could be, I, I, and again, I just not sure. Well, I mean, it's better to forego a little bit of short-term success, my philosophy for long-term health of the category. And I believe that's what Panini wants to do as well as tops and upper decks. So, but you throw craziness in there, which is not even your fault. You can put out something and you can't control the craziness of the secondary market. And that's what Beckett publications was about in the price guides was tracking not the primary market when i mean we'd look at that but pretty quickly the secondary market takes over and i don't want that to be crazy i want it to be healthy and i want it to be strong so i hope i can predict that into being i don't know but i sure have enjoyed the time with you nick thanks for sharing your wisdom and uh, thanks listeners i'll be back tomorrow with another episode